um, so that it shows up on the audio <laughs> and on the podcast. Probably going to say something like this uh, this week and the next two weeks as well. Um, this week and the next week and the next, we will be uncovering methodically, carefully, hopefully clearly, um, what will become through these five weeks, last two plus these three, what will become, at least in my eyes, a pretty serious case against homosexuality as acceptable in God's eyes. Um, Which means that it will seem at times this week, but especially the next week and the next week after that, it will seem like I am doing nothing but saying every time homosexuality is sin and God thinks so. Homosexuality is sin. The Bible says so. Homosexuality is sin. Here is why. That is heavy stuff. It's something that is culturally uh, in our awareness uh, heightened because for many of us sitting in these seats today, we have uh, family, friends, perhaps we ourselves have struggled with same-sex attraction. Uh, We are, each one of us, in some way, touched by this issue uh, as it has come to the surface in our culture today. So because of that sort of heightened awareness of it, what I will say at times for some of you will feel like, will he just stop harping? He is so negative. Um, so let me say at the outset, don't miss this. God is a gracious, he's a loving, he's a compassionate and forgiving God. And everything we'll talk about in these coming weeks can be forgiven. He can forgive the sin of practicing homosexuality uh, just like He's forgiven my sin of everything that I have done in my life that hasn't been practicing homosexuality. We will get to the place of talking about the church's response. How are we as believers to deal with these issues in the wider culture and in our own lives and in the lives of family and friends around us, co-workers perhaps? We will talk about the church's response. We will get to a place of talking Uh, about living out Jesus' love with a balance of the fullness of grace and of truth. We will get there eventually. We're going to talk, in fact, about how we as believers, if we are to communicate the gospel to people who at the outset think we hate them, we must love gay people more than gay people love gay people. We'll get to those kinds of places eventually. But for a couple of weeks, when we answer from Scripture, what does the Bible say about homosexuality, it will seem like I am being harsh. But because uh, the calling is to be faithful to Scripture, uh, that is the task. That's what we'll do, regardless of the consequences. Uh, and, and, and to say we want to be faithful to Scripture is not just a byline. This isn't just a, this isn't just a motto that people throw around. It's because... In these pages, we are told who we are and who God made us to be. So, at the outset, I just want to say some of those caveats before we jump in. God's intent for marriage and for sex is like a cake with icing. Now just go with me for a few minutes here. God's intent for marriage and sex is like a cake with icing. The cake is the idea that marriage and sex 
produce an environment where the image of God is formed in people. We talked about that quite a bit the last couple of weeks in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We're going to reread those passages just to get our heads in the game again. Uh, the cake is the idea that marriage and sex produce an environment where the image of God is formed in people. You know, we don't just think that that happens in the context of marriage, but the question about so-called same-sex marriage and uh, practicing homosexuals being able and allowed to marry, those kinds of things are the questions that emerge, so those are the contexts within which we will answer the question. You, you can participate in making babies for God even if you are single, you're unmarried, you can't have kids, you don't want to have kids, whatever the, the case may be, each one of us is called to participate in making disciple makers. So, the cake is the idea that marriage and sex produce an environment where the image of God is produced, formed in people. The icing. The icing is the idea that marriage and sex are also <laughs> fun, enjoyable, uh, an environment of, of, of closeness and intimacy, that they produce fulfillment and enjoyment in those who in marriage have good sex. I mean, sex was God's idea, people. I'm not just, you know, being silly. So the cake is the idea that marriage and sex produce an environment where the image of God is formed in people. The icing is the idea that marriage and sex are also enjoyable uh, and intimate and produce companionship and fulfillment. Now, <laughs> because these issues of, of marriage and, and sex and being a believer and being faithful to what God tells us those purposes are, some people make the cake the whole point. Not as many people as make icing the whole point. We'll get there in a second. But a lot of people make cake the whole point. And, and they think, I am doing what God called me to do to produce God babies. You know, biologically, as a part of male and female come together to produce God babies. If you think I'm being silly about that verbiage, Malachi 2.15, cool passage. What does the Lord seek? Godly offspring. Malachi 2.15. So some people make the cake the whole point. And, and frankly, that's kind of boring. You can do that and not have personal fulfillment and enjoyment and, and companionship happen. You can make babies and just make babies. So some people make the cake the whole point, but you won't enjoy it very much. On the other hand, some people make the icing very much the whole point. In, in fact, actually, way too many people make icing the main point. They are so blinded by how good it feels to have extra nerve endings in certain places, but they don't realize that if you only eat icing, it's really easy to get sick. <laughs> I mean, have you had icing? First, you know, couple spoonfuls or so is okay. I mean, it tastes good at first, but then pretty much you want to throw up after a few more of that. Just icing is not God's intent. So, you can have Marriage and sex that produces an environment where God babies are made. Or you can have marriage and sex while also having personal fulfillment and companionship, etc. God's intent for marriage and sex. God's intent for marriage and sex is a really wonderful and scrumptious cake with icing where both of them come together to create a place 
where God's purposes happen effectively. This is sort of like theological Alton Brown show here. God's intent for marriage is when both the cake and the icing come together in a way which, listen, cake by itself is okay, icing by itself, okay, but frankly, for 99% of us, cake and icing together tastes a lot better. Which is to say, they complement one another. God's intent for marriage is called male and female complementarity. Complementarity. And we're talking about male and female coming in a way together where God's intent is happening. It's fulfilled. Which is to say that male and female can do more together than separately. Male and female, in in just basic terms, God's intent for marriage and sex are male and female can do more together than separately. And listen, it's not just that they can do more than they did before. It's actually that they can do together what they can't even do separately. That's the biblical plan for marriage and sex. You can make happen as a complement to one another what you can't even do separately. So God's plan is cake and icing. Genesis 1, 26-8 and 2, 18-14. We're just going to read through this real quick. I'll look it up with you so you've got some time to look it up here. Genesis 1, 26-28 and 2, 18-24. Key places we've talked about the last two weeks, two weeks, where we're making an argument that uh, male and female complementarity is God's intent for marriage and sex. We also, first week, made the argument that God made gender as a male and female part biologically kind of thing because that's the only way that complementarity actually works. So, Genesis 1 26 to 8 and 2 18 to 24. Read along here. This is where we get these ideas. Uh, at least mostly at the beginning here. Genesis 1, 26 and following. Then God said, this was after he'd made the rest of creation. This is a part of day six. Then God said, and this is a contrast to what happened before, and yet at the same time, a parallel. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. That part is contrast. Nothing else is made in God's image or likeness until he got to human beings. And he says, and let them have dominion. That is uh, both a parallel and a contrast, but... The contrast is that we have more dominion than what came before, which made things after its own kind. So let them have dominion over fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So because of that, because that's the purpose, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him and blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. This is the command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Jump forward there to Genesis 2, 18 to 24. Genesis 2, 18 to 24. This is an expanded view of day six with the creation of humanity. So more detail here about what was going on with what we just read there in Genesis 1. Then the Lord God said, It is not good. Remember he had said that everything before that he had created was good because it was doing what it was meant to do. That's what the word good meant there in Genesis 1. But this is not good because because Adam can't do what God wanted him to do. So it's not good that the man should be alone. It doesn't say lonely. It says alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
a helper that fits with him, that complements him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But the problem was, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. All of the rest of creation would not complement Adam to do what God wanted him to do. But for Adam, there was not, a found, not found a helper fit for him. So, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man broke out in musical song and said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam, even at that time, realized this I can work with. Therefore, therefore, verse 24, for that reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Therefore, in other words, to fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. One flesh is a Hebrew way of saying, this was two, now it's one. There's a whole different animal here. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time going through Genesis 1 and 2 because we spent the last two weeks sort of making a case for the idea that God's intent from the beginning of creation was that a biological man and a biological woman in other words, God made body parts that define one as a man and woman, which is a biological definition. Genesis doesn't have any room for defining gender by how one feels or what someone says or what any earthly law allows. That is not the definition of gender. Are we tracking? So we've been making that case over the last two weeks. When it comes to the question of marriage and sex, a biological male and a biological female coming together sexually is the only way to do, at least biologically, what God intended. And listen, we're not just trying to say, hey, singles and people who can't have kids, you know, we don't care about you. We're just answering the question of marriage because the question was asked in the context of marriage. And every single one of you <laughs> came out of the union we're talking about. So, long story short, there is a complementarity of male and female that is built into God's design. Not only can they just do more, they can do what they cannot separately. Now, Jesus himself confirms this idea by hearkening to the passage we just read. Some people say, listen, you're, you're New Testament people. The Old Testament doesn't apply. Things are different now. We'll get to that as well in Leviticus. But turn to Matthew 19. This is one of two places in the Gospels where this shows up. I've given you a few other places that uh, help us think about this issue there in the New Testament uh, as well as the Old Testament, Malachi. Matthew 19, 3 through 6. That's where we're going to jump in here to see where Jesus confirms this male and female complementarity. Paul does this quite a number of places as well, but we're just going to go with Jesus today. Which is a way of saying, by the way, most of the stuff I talk about is just this little tiny smidge of the evidence that is there for the things I talk about. 
quite often. And that'll be the case even for some of this, uh, these questions we're answering the next few weeks here. There are lots of other places we could talk about, but let's talk about this one. Matthew 19, 3 through 6, this is where Jesus is making a point about divorce by speaking from the assumption that God's intent for marriage was man and woman complementing one another with an E, not an I. This is one of those many scenes in the New Testament where the Pharisees try to challenge Jesus. And so they come up to him, verse 3, and they test him by asking, is it lawful, Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Two schools of thought at the time among the rabbis, uh, two schools of Jewish thought about what was lawful for divorce. One said on one extreme that a man could only divorce for adultery. The other on the other extreme said a man could divorce his wife if she burned his toast. And I'm not just making that up. There was a law that said if she spoiled the dish, feel free to divorce her. So... Those are the two options we're talking about. So the Pharisees are coming to him, testing him, and he responds to them by reminding them of God's intent. Verse 4, he answered, this is hilarious by the way, he answered, have you not read? (laughs) What an awesome thing to say by the way. Uh, You're Old Testament teachers of the law. Have you not read? How do you not know this? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's saying, don't you know that from the beginning God made them male and female to complement one another to achieve my purposes? And Jesus could have said that. And then he quotes in verse 5, Genesis 2.24. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God's intent for marriage is to carry out God's purposes in the world and the complementarity of male and female is the only way that that can work to make God babies. And Jesus draws from the assumption made in Genesis 2.24 just like we did. So from that background, from the last couple of weeks, just to kind of bring you up to speed, we move on to the specific question of what does the Bible say about homosexuality. Now, for, before we jump in, for most of y'all, with every one of these passages we're going to cover, for most of you, I could just open it up, read the passages, close it up, and most of you would say, all right, I'm good, I got it. <clears throat> but I want you to have some real intellectual meat on the bones of where we say Scripture stands about homosexuality, uh, practicing homosexuality. So this is going to be some hardcore Scripture stuff, a little more hardcore uh, seminary type stuff the next couple weeks, but we'll sort of ease in this week. So let's dive in here at number two, where it says practicing homosexuality is contrary to God's plan, which is number one we just talked about, and is sin. That's part one. And these are going to be scriptures for 2a and b here in Leviticus, 2 Corinthians, and 1 Timothy that explicitly name homosexuality. There aren't a lot of those in scripture, but there are a few. So we're going to do that first as sort of the primary texts. Then we'll go to the secondary texts, which implicitly describe the practice of homosexuality 
as contrary to God's plan. And by the way, I did intentionally use the word practicing homosexuality. We'll talk about same-sex attraction uh, in the third, wor- third week a little bit. So turn to Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 if you're not there yet. Leviticus 18:22 and Leviticus 20, verse 13. We won't be able to give all of the information there is on this today. Uh, there's a whole lot more. But we'll give you an overview. And I'm not going to give a lot of uh, argument for where those who do not hold to the traditional view, in other words, those who condone homosexuality from the Bible, I'm not going to give you a lot of their argument. What I'm going to primarily do is tell you what the Bible says about it because that's the question we're answering. So Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, let's read these together first to get our heads around this. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Turn over a couple pages there to Leviticus 20, verse 13. Similar kind of stuff there. Expands on it a little bit. It says, verse 13, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, in other words, in the same manner as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. In other words, both parties of the homosexual practice have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death and their blood is upon them. Some basic context about Leviticus before we jump into some detail. Long story short, the main theme in the book of Leviticus, third book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, it's right on the heels of coming out of Exodus. Almost all of Leviticus was communicated uh, before the first month or two was over coming out of the Exodus. And there are five places where this main theme Leviticus shows up. The first time is 1144, if you're a note taker, 1144. It says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. That phrase shows up a bunch of places. Be holy, for I am holy. Be holy, for I am holy. Be holy, for I am holy. It's like this concept of the image of God being being increasingly formed in someone. The likeness and the image of God being formed in someone with increasing uh, glory, which is a way that Scripture talks about it later in the New Testament. So, everything in Leviticus uh, sort of revolves around this idea of being holy as God is holy. And, and to consecrate oneself, it's not a word we use a whole lot today, but to consecrate oneself is to formally dedicate, in very practical kinds of ways, to formally dedicate, here in Leviticus, one's whole life to holiness, to living like God. In other words, your behavior, your action, uh, which comes from thought, is something that increasingly looks like the heart, the character, and the nature of God. So, Leviticus has that theme to it. So, because the people of God were called to keep themselves holy, there are two basic categories of laws or commands. There are actually three, but only two of them uh, touch where we're going to be talking today. The three of them are ceremonial, moral, and civil. We're not going to talk about the civil laws because they don't really have a whole lot to do with what we're talking about here, though there are some here and there in Leviticus. We're going to talk about ceremonial laws and moral laws. Another word for ceremonial sometimes is ritual law, and they're called ritual law because they were used a lot in in worship practices in the tabernacle, which was sort of a, a portable temple that was new for them at the time. Ceremonial and moral. Moral laws 
are the kinds of laws, and we'll talk about this increasingly here in just a bit, moral laws that are true for all time for all people. True for all time for all people. Ceremonial or ritual laws are the kinds of laws where if you, you, if you break that law, if you transgress that law, there's a payment that needs to be made, but someone can make that payment. You can. The priest could. Two categories of laws. Now, one main objection, and we'll keep going here in just a second, but one main objection that is made to what I just told you about is that Leviticus itself doesn't talk about these laws as this is a ceremonial law, this is a moral law, this is a but, but it does talk about the penalties for each one, and so the categories come from how it uses those laws and commands. So, ceremonial laws was about keeping pure and keeping clean, doing things like keeping yourselves healthy, doing things a certain way, uh, doing things in worship a certain way, uh, especially for physical health as well. The punishment for all of these could be paid for by doing something simply like just cleaning off. Just go take a bath. Just go take a bath. You'll be fine. (laughs) Ceremonial and ritual laws could be like that. You could make a sacrifice or bring an offering to the tabernacle. You've You've made up for your transgression. You're good. You're clean. Let's go. Moral laws were about moral purity that was about keeping one's behavior and one's heart life clean before God. Uh, These were a much bigger deal. They're also called uh, ethical laws. But these moral laws were a much bigger deal and the penalty for them was vastly different than the ritual and ceremonial laws. The penalty for them included things like stoning, death, being taken out of the camp, being cut off from the community. Uh, These were the kinds of things that had real severe penalty for which you can't pay. So there's an important distinction between those two that we need to keep in mind as we go into uh, this text here. So this key distinction between ceremonial and moral laws. So, the argument goes, uh, for those who condone homosexuality, these verses here in Leviticus no longer apply because it's the Old Testament law that no longer applies to us as New Testament Christians. Uh, The laws in Leviticus do not apply in contemporary society or for New Testament Christians because the blood of Jesus has uh, made a new covenant, a new way of of interacting with God. Here's the basic gist of how the argument goes. And and again, I'm not going to go a whole lot into those who condone homosexuality. I'm not going to go a lot into their argument. I'm just going to tell you some basics about it. There are some pretty sophisticated forms of these. I'll tell you a couple resources later on if you'd like to uh, look up some things because there's a, a whole bunch of literature out there right now. But the objection here about this Levitical law thing, the objection to the continued application of these passages goes something like this. Well, I hear you. I hear that you just read 1822 and 2013 and that it says that homosexuality is an abomination which I assume means that God means it's a sin, and the penalty for it in 2013 is is death. But did you also know that Leviticus condemns failing to include salt in your offering? Uh, It also condemns not keeping your hair well kept. For some of you all, there's still... (laughs) Just kidding. Actually, Jesus hardly cares about that, frankly. Did you know that going to church within 33 days of bearing a girl or 66 days of bearing a boy 
is condemned. It's forbidden by the law. So, because Christ died to free us from the Old Testament law, you cannot apply all of these laws still. Because homosexuality is one of them, and we're free from them, you can't continue to apply homosexuality. So if you're going to condemn homosexuality, then you have to condemn everything else. And, and, and I think the argument is made, I, I, the argument is made actually from a place of fear. I, w- I want you as a Christian to fear that you're going to become a legalist if you're consistent with your argument because you're going to have to all be uh, making sure that you cut your hair. There's a well-known book that I'm reading called God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines. Uh, it's one of the most popular ones today. God and the Gay Christian uh, that says that we don't follow Old Testament prohibitions anymore because they were declared non-binding. And, and he, he draws from this one place. He says, they were declared non-binding in places like Acts 15. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Acts 15, it's where the New Testament uh, leaders, the early church leaders, gathered for sort of a theological powwow in Jerusalem. Uh, they were deciding about whether or not Gentile converts to Christianity, non-Jew converts to Christianity had to continue to live uh, in the ways that Jews did to keep up all those laws. And, and, and see, they decided that they didn't have to. They decided you don't have to be circumcised. Abstain from things that are, you know, food sacrificed to idols. Abstain from things polluted by idols. So if you just do those things, just to kind of keep, keep nice with the Jews who became Christians, then you're good. So the argument basically goes. There are a number of reasons why uh, those kinds of generic arguments uh, for why Leviticus doesn't hold. There are bunches of reasons why, uh, from the traditional view, the Levitical laws that are moral still hold. But I'll just give you five of them. Okay, We're just going to give you five of them here. This is all under the category of why these verses in Leviticus do condemn homosexual practice and why they still apply. Number one, Leviticus 18.22 shows up in the larger context of a bunch of forbidden sexual relations. It shows up in the larger context of a bunch of forbidden sexual relations like incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, child sacrifice. I know it's a bit different in terms of the sexual part, but all of those uh, are those prohibitions that we still consider universally valid. So to take the, the argument that condones homosexual practice, we would also have to allow child sacrifice, bestiality, adultery, and incest. That's number one. If we were being consistent with their argument. See how that's the opposite? Okay. Second reason. And... This is one of those where the information just keeps coming and just keeps coming and just keeps coming. Number two, the word for abomination here in both of these verses, the word for abomination here is the main word that is debated quite a bit here. The main word here means, according to most of the Hebrew dictionaries, an abhorrent thing or something detestable, something loathsome, something utterly repugnant or disgusting. Those are the basic uh, synonyms for an abomination couple things here. Let me show you something in the text. In Leviticus 18, 6 to 23, 
It includes practices that are called abominations, but they're called abominations at the end of the chapter in verses 24 to 30. Two places there. In verses 24 to 30, they're called abominations. With one fell swoop, all of those things that have been listed before are put into one large category of abominations with one exception. With one exception. And this by itself doesn't make the case, but with what I'm about to say, it is a good piece of the puzzle. One exception is that it calls same-sex male intercourse in the verse we read, verse 22, it does call it an abomination. And it does that specifically. Again, same exact thing happens in Leviticus 20. In Leviticus 20. Penalties are being prescribed for many of the forbidden acts like we just named in Leviticus 18. All these penalties are being prescribed for the forbidden acts in Leviticus 18 and in 19. But then in Leviticus 20, the word abomination is applied specifically only to sexual intercourse between males. In fact, in the entire holiness code of Leviticus 17 to 26, in that entire section, the only, the only sin with which the word abomination is attached specifically is sexual intercourse between males. In fact, in the first four books of the entire Bible, the only forbidden act that has the word abomination closely attached to it is homosexual intercourse. Another point about this word abomination. Uh, there are a few ways we go about this. Let me just read you a couple things from uh, a couple folks here about this word abomination. The word for abomination is toeva in the Hebrew, and so I'm going to read what they say, which uses the word toeva. This is a famous, now dead, professor of gay studies at Yale. His name is John Boswell, and he said this about the word abomination. He said, the Hebrew word toeva does not usually signify something intrinsically evil. Remember this. This is what he's saying. It does not typically signify something intrinsically evil, like rape or theft, or as we're saying here, homosexual uh, intercourse. But it describes something that is ceremonially or ritually unclean for Jews, like eating pork or engaging in intercourse during menstruation, uh, both of which are prohibited in these same chapters. He says, It is used throughout the Old Testament to designate those Jewish sins which involve ethnic contamination or idolatry. Meaning he's putting the word abomination in this category of ceremonial laws. Remember, we said ceremonial or ritual laws. They all have uh, payment that could be made. Now I'm going to quote uh, a man named Robert Gagnon. He's written a couple uh, important books. His uh, best one is a 550-page tome that if you are seriously interested in this, uh, you should read. That's my main source for most of what I'm saying today. I'm going to quote his response. That guy who just said that abominations is used only for ritual cleansing is typically something that you know is not important. At least that's what he's saying. Robert Gagnon's response and this is the information is just going to keep coming. It's just going to keep coming. He says, The distinction is odd in view of the way in which the word is actually used in Leviticus 18 and 20. He said, The word toeva is restricted in Leviticus to forms of sexual immorality that can be characterized in three ways. Number one, a sexual act regarded by Yahweh as utterly detestable or abhorrent. Number two, a sexual act 
which rendered the individual participants liable to the death penalty or being cut off from God's people. And it's also restricted in Leviticus to a sexual act which, if left unpunished by the nation, put the entire nation at risk of God's consuming wrath. In fact, Gagnon points out that 40 times the word, 43 times the word shows up in Ezekiel to expand it and include a wide variety, a wide variety of what is called detestable offenses like that. He shows that in the other 68 times that it occurs outside the rest of the Old Testament, that's 111 plus if you're keeping track, he shows that in the other 111 total, but 68 plus times, abominations involve worship of other gods, sacrificing one's children to pagan gods, practicing sorcery, practicing divination, practicing necromancy, that's sex with dead, uh, adultery, practicing incest, practicing cross-dressing, swearing falsely, habitual lying, oppressing or not aiding the poor, aliens, widows, orphans, a false balance used to cheat the poor, robbery, creating family strife, and that's about half of them. Is there a doubt as to any of those practices? being something you should or should not do. He says, it is contextually clear that what is generally meant by toevah is something that Yahweh hates. Deuteronomy 12.31 and Proverbs 6.16. Deuteronomy 12.31 and Proverbs 6.16. Yes, both of those are places where the word abomination as a description of what Yahweh hates, shows up in the same verse. We're just past point number two. Point number three, uh, which helps us understand that these Levitical codes uh, still apply in moral terms. The penalty, the penalty for homosexual intercourse was, ex- uh, intercourse was extreme, meaning capital punishment. Only very serious offenses like adultery, Rape, incest, bestiality, human sacrifice, murder, blasphemy, witchcraft, sacrificing to false gods. Only those kinds of activities in the Old Testament and in Levitical codes came with that penalty. Are we to believe that homosexuality is the one exception? This shows that Scripture itself places it in this category of moral laws. And, and it may not use the word moral law, but it does carry a penalty that demonstrates the seriousness of, of, of how God understood the sin. Moral laws are things that are true for all people for all time, regardless. Number four. This is a bit of a complicated one, but it's worth making. The Bible is different than how the laws of its culture treated homosexuality. Unlike the middle Assyrian laws for things like homosexual rape that were in place in the wider culture of the ancient Near East, those were the kinds of laws that were in place. There were not uh, many laws that we know of, uh, perhaps not any, but there's debate about this. Uh, There might not be any laws in the wider culture against supposedly consenting male-to-male sexual intercourse, but there were laws against homosexual rape which is forcible, oppressive, uh, especially class, social class differences kinds of offenses. There were laws against those. Unlike those laws, 
the laws in Leviticus in 18 and 20 are unqualified and absolute. In other words, unlike the cultural laws, Leviticus neither penalizes only oppressive forms of homosexuality, nor do they excuse either of the parties in the act. The cultural laws at the time would excuse one of the parties, occasionally depending on the situation, and it only oppressed, it only penalized oppressive forms of homosexuality. Unlike those laws, Leviticus, for example, uses the term, the general term, male, when it's talking about this in Leviticus 18 and 20. The laws use words like neighbor, boy, youth. So, contrary to the objection, the question of whether homosexual relationship in view here in Leviticus is an example of pederasty, merely pederasty or oppressive forms of homosexuality doesn't enter the picture because Leviticus covers all male-to-male relations. It is not just an example of pederasty, which, please don't look it up, uh, man, boy. Uh, It doesn't just uh, talk about in the context of the Bible. It doesn't just talk about... uh, forms of homosexual rape uh, where um, someone was uh, in the uh, dominated position. That was something that their, their laws talked a lot about as an oppressive form of homosexuality. So, that's number four. Finally, number five. This one's pretty easy to understand. And this is perhaps one of the most important ones. Homosexuality is prohibited in the New Testament by Paul. We'll make that case very clearly next week. In other words, if there are parts of the Old Testament law that are called sin that carry over into the New Covenant, you can be sure (laughs) that those things are still sin. We will see that without a doubt, the part of Leviticus that calls homosexuality a sin in the Old Testament carries over. It still carries over into the New Testament as one of those moral laws that is true for all people for all time. Now friends, uh, we'll continue the next few weeks uh, to unpack what Scripture says. And it's going to get heavier and more intense, honestly, in terms of the amount of evidence there is that demonstrates the traditional view of homosexuality, practicing homosexuality as sin, is is a reasonable view that the Bible communicates. (laughs) But, but, none of us gets to stand here (laughs) or anywhere without acknowledging first, without acknowledging that For example, what does change in the New Testament with the coming of Christ is that the curse of sin that we deserved, each one of us, practicing homosexual or not, struggling with same-sex attraction or otherwise, the curse of sin that we could not undo, which no amount of payment could have made up for, can now be undone by Christ's blood. For your sin, for my sin, There is now payment that couldn't have been made. 
There is now payment for all of those moral laws listed that are true for all people for all time. There is payment for the things you've said or done which are in direct rebellion against God's intent, whether that is the practice of homosexuality or the practice of eating too much cake. So, so please, friends, do not go into the study of Scripture and then leave it feeling smug because we know that, quote, they out there. Friends, this isn't just out there. Many people in this room are affected by these kinds of issues. So it's something to be uh, mindful of, prayerful about, careful about the purpose of knowing what sin is is so that we can also know what redemption and reconciliation and having a relationship with God for eternity are. 2 Corinthians 5 is a great passage. It says, For our sake, for the sake of, of all of us who were in rebellion against God, He made His Son Jesus to be sin, though He didn't sin, so that we might have, that we might become righteousness. Friends, let's always keep the Gospel in mind. We must always keep the Gospel in mind. But there, but for the grace of God, go every single one of us. Let's pray to friends. Father in heaven, we're gathered because you've called us. You've called us as those who have struggled with and struggle still with sin. Our name was Sinner, but Father, You, because of Your perfect, sinless Son, Jesus Christ, who You sent to live in righteousness for us. We have payment. We have coverage. You call us a saint now, Lord, because You've given us a new identity in Christ. Lord, equip us through Your Word. Make of us men and women of prayer and of Word, of depth of relationship with You from day to day so that we hear from You and we communicate Your Gospel to a world that needs to know that You are God, that You love them, that You've come to to demonstrate Your love in the person of Christ by sacrificing in ways that none of us could. Lord, we give you praise and we give you glory for that truth. It's why we come here and why we sing together. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. If this is new language for you and you're not sure what your relationship with God is and this Jesus stuff is...